a case of mistaken identity. Now, it can range from the simply embarrassing, can't it, to the downright serious. Up the embarrassing end, for example, was the time uh, I was having a conversation with someone and midway through the conversation, my wife Sarah walked up and the guy I was speaking with just stopped and he said, oh, this must be your daughter. <laughs> Bit awkward, slightly embarrassing for him. But up the more serious end of the scale is the case of Mustafa al-Aziz al-Shamiri. He was a man from Yemen who was detained at the US base at Guantanamo Bay for over 13 years in what turned out to be a case of mistaken identity. Over 13 years, can you believe it? And he was released just earlier this month. A case of mistaken identity can range from the simply embarrassing to the downright serious. And friends, on that scale, mistaking the identity of Jesus, it is way, 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 way down the serious end. That's why in today's passage, Matthew takes great pains to prevent us from making a monumental mistake. He wants to make sure that we know just who Jesus is so that we won't mistake his identity. And it's actually a really timely reminder for us, I think, because at this time of year it can be particularly easy to make the mistake of thinking of Jesus simply as the little baby in the manger, or gentle and meek and mild. But what what Matthew wants to remind us of is that Jesus is actually an immensely impressive and overwhelmingly powerful king. Someone who you trifle with at your own peril. You want to make sure that you get it right who this guy is. Because to mistake the identity of King Jesus is to make a mistake of epic proportions. Now Matthew helps us to see just how impressive and powerful Jesus is by telling us about this series of interactions that John the Baptist has. Firstly with Isaiah, then with the crowds who come out to him, then with a bunch of Pharisees and Sadducees and finally with Jesus himself. And each one of these interactions is like putting another piece in the puzzle. The more pieces you add to the puzzle, the clearer the overall picture becomes. And so as we look at each of these interactions this morning, hopefully what we'll get is this increasingly clear picture of just how impressive and how powerful Jesus really is. So let's start with John's interaction with Isaiah. We'll pick it up from Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now what Matthew wants us to notice First up here is that John is the one that Isaiah prophesied about. John's the one who was going to come and prepare the way for the Lord. See, hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah had prophesied. And back in chapter 40, he said that someone would arrive who would go out in the desert and they would cry out and they would prepare the way for the Lord. This is the Lord who would then come in glory. The Lord who would come uh, with power so as to rule over the earth. This is the same everlasting Lord who is the creator of the heavens and the earth, before whom the nations are like a drop in a bucket, worthless, 
less than nothing, not even worth measuring on the scales. This is the same Lord who sits enthroned above the earth, before whom, uh, sorry, who reduces the rulers of the earth to nothing, who blows on them and they simply wither up, blown away like chaff on the breeze. This is the Lord who has no equal. This is the sovereign Lord who is immensely powerful, who is beyond our capability to even imagine, let alone comprehend. And Matthew wants us to know up front that John is here to prepare the way for him to come. Back in 2010, President Obama visited Afghanistan. It was his first visit as president to a war zone. And the visit was only made after very careful preparations had been made, after every precaution had been taken so as to guarantee his safety. So, for example, he took a top-secret overnight flight that only a select few knew about. He arrived in the country under cover of darkness where he landed at the highly fortified Bagram airfield, met with just a a handful of US uh, officials, After that, he again took another top-secret flight, helicopter flight to Kabul, where he met with the Afghan president, who was only told about the visit the day before. Uh, Over the course of the trip, he only visited a handful of select, secure, top-secret locations, only staying in each place for a matter of hours, and the entire trip only lasted a couple of days. It was a top-secret trip, uh, and every precaution was taken so as to keep President Obama safe. Now, I mention that because I want you to see how different that is to what's happening here in Matthew. See, on the one hand, it's all hush-hush and top secret. But on the other hand, you see, John is out there in the wilderness crying out to anyone and everyone who will listen, telling them that the Lord's coming. In President Obama's case, everything was carefully prepared and managed so as to guarantee his safety. But John, you see, he's not preparing the, Lord, uh, the people so that the Lord will be safe when he comes. He's preparing the people so that they will be safe when the Lord comes. Because, you see, the president has all the appearance of power, but the sovereign Lord has real power. He has more power in the tip of his little finger than the president can begin to imagine. The Lord has the kind of power that's both immensely comforting but also terrifyingly frightening. You see, the Lord is overwhelmingly powerful. He is not to be trifled with, and the people actually need to be prepared for him to come. And did you notice how John said about preparing them? It's there in verse 2. John was preparing the people by calling on them to repent. In other words, he was calling on them to stop ignoring the Lord to stop rejecting his authority. He was calling on them to recognise and to understand just who it is that was coming and to turn back to him and to submit to him because, you see, he didn't want them to make the mistake of, of mistaking the identity of the one who was coming because the fact was the powerful sovereign Lord was coming and he was coming to take his rightful place ruling the world and as we'll see in a minute... When he comes, he would not tolerate being ignored and rejected. And so as John prepares the way for this immensely powerful one to come, he calls on the crowds to repent so as to prepare themselves. And you know what? The crowds, by and large, they get it. 
They go out to John, they listen to his message, they confess their sins and they're baptised as a kind of symbol of their repentance, as a sign that they have recognised who it is that's coming, as a sign that they're prepared for him to come. So have a look at verse 5, for example. People went out to him, that is, they went out to John, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. You see the crowds, they get it. They recognised their sin. They knew they'd been ignoring and rejecting the Lord. They knew they had mistaken his identity. They heard John's message that this immensely powerful Lord was coming and they knew that they had to, be, uh, they had to prepare themselves. And so they repented and they were baptised by John as a sign of that repentance. And I think that's what John's talking about in verse 11 when he says, I baptise you with water for repentance. What he means is he, there's nothing special about the baptism. He knew, John knew his baptism itself couldn't prepare them for the people to come. It was just a sign of the one thing that could prepare them. It was just a sign that the people had repented and so had prepared themselves for the Lord to come because in the end, the only way to prepare to come face to face with this powerful sovereign Lord, the creator and ruler of the ends of the earth, the only way to prepare to come face to face with him is to repent of arrogance, to repent of rejecting and ignoring him, to repent of treating him lightly and dismissively, to recognise who he is and to turn back to him and submit to him. And the crowd's got that. Now we've put a couple of pieces in the puzzle so far. We've seen John interact with Isaiah, the one who was to prepare the way for the sovereign Lord. We've seen John and the crowds who understood that and who repented. And I hope you're starting to see already this picture emerging of someone immensely impressive and powerful who is coming. And that's a picture that just gets even clearer still in John's interaction with the Pharisees and Sadducees. If you're unsure who the Pharisees and Sadducees were, they were just a bunch of Jewish religious leaders, a bit like priests or religious teachers. And it turns out that when the crowds came out to John, some of these guys tagged along as well. But evidently they hadn't really understood who it was that was coming and what they had to do to prepare for his arrival. In fact, it seems as though they had completely mistaken his identity. They just didn't get it because they were only giving lip service to the Lord. Unlike the people who repented, they were giving lip service and it turns out to be a massive mistake. Let's pick it up from verse 7. When John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Doesn't hold back, does he? In fact, he takes a couple of big steps down the pitch and he accuses these Jewish leaders, who should have known better, of not really showing repentance at all. In fact, he accuses them of simply giving lip service to the Lord, of treating him lightly and actually being dismissive of him, which is a huge mistake because in light of those things, see what John said? The Lord's wrath is coming against them. And friends, look, I hope this morning you're not making the same mistake 
as the Pharisees and Sadducees. Because let's be clear about this. This Lord is immensely impressive. He's the overwhelmingly powerful Lord of all. And he can absolutely spot half-heartedness from a mile off. In an instant, he can pick out those who are simply giving him lip service. And he will most certainly reveal and know those who are being dismissive of him and treating him lightly. And he will treat those people with the anger and judgment that they deserve, which is exactly what John goes on to say in verse 10. The axe is already at the root of the trees, he says, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In case that's not clear enough, he says it again in verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Do you see what John's saying? The sovereign Lord who is coming in power, when he, and when he arrives, it will be absolutely useless to be simply mouthing the words of repentance. It will be utterly, utterly futile to be giving lip service to the Lord because whoever is not producing fruit in keeping with repentance, that person will be cut down and thrown into the fire, burned up like chaff in a raging, unquenchable inferno because the Lord is immensely impressive and overwhelmingly powerful and he will not tolerate being dismissed and ignored and rejected. Now, at this point, we've got almost all the pieces of the puzzle in place. The picture's actually pretty clear that there is someone immensely impressive and powerful coming. And I hope you're kind of starting to feel the weight of how serious and dangerous it is to mistake his identity and to not treat him as he deserves. Now, the only detail that we're missing really is who exactly this person is. And I'm sure it'll come as no surprise to you when I tell you that it's Jesus So we've been thinking about this person who's coming and then in verse 13 Matthew tells us Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. And what that means is that everything that's been building and building and building through these interactions, it's all culminating in the coming of Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. Because you see, Jesus is the sovereign Lord who was coming to take his rightful place ruling the world. Jesus is the sovereign Lord who rules over the ends of the earth. And that point is just reinforced at the end of this interaction between John and Jesus. Because you see, after John baptises Jesus, God's voice rings out from heaven and says in verse 17, this is my son. And given everything that's come before in this chapter, when we hear those words from God, this is my son... I think what Matthew wants us to hear is echoes of these words from Psalm 2. You are my son. Hear the echoes there? You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, 
for his wrath can flare up in a moment. As if everything we've already heard in Matthew isn't enough, here at the very end of this interaction between John and Jesus, we get further affirmation that Jesus is in fact God's chosen king. And as such, he is immensely impressive and overwhelmingly powerful. See, the nations are his inheritance. The ends of the earth belong to him. He rules over it all with an iron scepter. He dashes his enemies to pieces like fragile bits of pottery. And so anyone who is wise, well, they will serve him with fear. They will fall before him with trembling. Otherwise, his anger and his wrath will flare up and they'll be destroyed in an instant. Now, friends, I hope you've got the picture here. Mistaking the identity of Jesus is serious and it is dangerous. So let me ask you, have you mistaken Jesus' identity? Are you still mistaking Jesus' identity? Because it's dangerous. Back in the 1930s, three men hopped on a bus in Detroit. Near the back of the bus was a man just sitting there on his own, minding his own business. Had a tracksuit on with a hoodie pulled over his head. He was just kind of staring at the floor. He didn't look like much. But these three guys who hopped on the bus, they were looking for some fun. And so they decided to pick on this guy and try and pick a fight with him. They started to insult him, but he didn't respond. So they turned up the heat. More and more insults, trying to egg this guy on to have a fight. Still no reaction. Eventually, after quite a bit of this, the guy pressed the button uh, to ring the bell for his stop. And as the bus came to a standstill, he slowly stood up. And it was at that point that the three men realised they'd underestimated this guy. He was actually bigger than they thought. Much, much bigger. And as he stood and walked down the aisle toward the door, he reached into his pocket, took out a business card handed it to the three guys and simply hopped off the bus. And as the bus pulled away from the curb, the young men gathered around the business card to read these words. Joe Lewis, professional boxer. See, they just tried to pick a fight with the man who would be the undisputed heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. Mistaking Joe Lewis's identity was foolish, and those men were extremely fortunate not to get themselves in big trouble that day. But friends, if what we've seen about Jesus in Matthew today is true, and it is, then mistaking the identity of Jesus is way more foolish than that. And it is likely to get you into a world more trouble than mistaking Joe Lewis's identity. Because Jesus is not just the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. He's the creator of the world. He owns the world. He rules the world. And he rules it with an iron scepter. You don't want to mess with this guy. In fact, you want to make sure, absolutely sure that you've got it right who this guy is. Because he is immensely, immensely impressive. And his power is overwhelming. So let me ask you again, have you mistaken Jesus' identity? Are you still mistaking his identity? 
Because if you are, that is utterly foolish and it's a big mistake and you're on extremely dangerous ground. But hey, maybe you get this. Maybe you get who Jesus is. Maybe you you get how impressive and powerful he is. Maybe you understand just how awesome a king he is. If you do, then that's great. But let me say this. It's one thing to say it. It's one thing to mouth the words. But what sort of fruit are you showing? Because, friends, if we're really going to go where this word of God is taking us this morning, then it's going to mean going to a place where you fall at the feet of Jesus in fear and trembling. It's going to mean going to a place where you truly, actually worship and submit to him in obedience. It's going to mean confessing your sins to him, owning up to him the ways that you have failed and betrayed him, owning the times that you have dismissed him and taken him lightly and not asking, begging him to forgive you. If we're seriously going to go where this word of God is taking us this morning, it's going to mean foregoing your rights for his sake, changing your priorities so that they match his priorities. It's going to mean undivided devotion to Jesus. No more half-hearted, double-minded wavering. No more hedging your bets. If you really get who Jesus is, it will mean living in single-minded, undivided devotion to him. If we're really going to go where this word of God is taking us, friends, it'll mean repenting. Not repenting in the sense of going back to the law like Israel, but repenting in the sense of completely changing your way of thinking about Jesus. Repenting in the sense of getting it right in your mind and especially in your heart. Who this guy really is. How impressive and powerful he is. It'll mean shaping your entire life around him and his priorities and what he says is important. Because friends, in the end, that is just how impressive and powerful a king Jesus really is. He demands nothing less. I really do hope you're not mistaking his identity. Let me pray. Father, we thank you once again for this time of year and just for the opportunity that it provides us to stop a bit and reflect on your son Jesus and his arrival into the world. Father, we do thank you that he came as a king a king who loves us and who came to save us from our sins. But Father, help us not to lose sight of the fact as well that he is an immensely impressive and overwhelmingly powerful king, a king who demands obedience and allegiance. And so we pray, Father, that you'll be at work in us through this word this morning to just recognise and understand who he is, to not mistake his identity and to treat him lightly, but to repent and to submit to him in obedience. We pray these things in his name. Amen.